Hello, Falava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. The final decision will be made on in the morning of the 24th based on the climate conditions or weather conditions. Pacific leaders are still at loggerheads over Japan's release of treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Also, 60,000 people in Bougainville are affected by months of heavy rain. And later... You know, human rights are all about... They're all about fairness and decency and equality. The housing crisis in New Zealand persists. But first, a spokesperson in a village on Rambi Island is urging the Fiji and Kiribati government to halt an exploration process to mine the remaining phosphates on Barnaba Island by an Australian mining company. Last week, an administrator from the Rambi Council of Leaders sent a letter to the managing director of Centrix Limited approving the company's request for exploration, citing the proposal had gone through prominent members of the community. However, the chairman of Tabwewa, Tuanwea Taratai, says neither the Banaban community on Rambi Island or Banaba itself were ever consulted. Mr Taratai says action is needed sooner rather than later. We need to, to halt uh, all the, uh, the process that is underway now, before it is too late, before they make an agreement on uh, uh, the next stage. Okay? And I think when it is on an early stage, we need to stop everything, make an halt to it. Both Centrix Limited and the administrator of the Rambi Council of Leaders have been asked to comment. Pacific leaders are still disunited over Japan's release of over 1 million tonnes of treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific. And that's meant to start this morning. A Japanese government spokesperson says it's not willfully trying to divide the Pacific. But the Pacific Islands Forum chair says diverging views remain and is said to be a matter of priority for discussion at the upcoming Forum Summit. Lydia Lewis has the story. Fiji's Prime Minister is the most recent Pacific leader to speak out, defending Japan. I am satisfied that Japan has demonstrated commitment to satisfy the wishes of Pacific Island states as conveyed to Japan by the Pacific Islands Forum Chair, the Honourable Prime Minister Brown of the Cook Islands. After reading the report, which I encourage you to also do, I am satisfied that the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, report is reassuring enough to dispel any fears of any untoward degradation of the ocean environment that would adversely affect lives and the ecosystems in our precious blue Pacific. Palau, Papua New Guinea, Cook Islands and Federated States of Micronesia have also publicly backed the plan or placed their faith in Japan's word that it will be safe. But not everyone's convinced. Vanuatu's Foreign Minister Matai Seremaya has drafted a declaration against the release. Urging polluters not to discharge the treated water in the Pacific Ocean until and unless the treated water is incontrovertibly proven to be safe to do so and seriously consider other options. Tuvalu has expressed opposition. Minister for Finance Seve Painil told FBC News in Fiji if Japan is genuinely confident, why not consider disposing it within their own lakes and nearby waters? But that's exactly what Fiji Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka says Japan is doing. Taking to social media, he defended criticism. 
There are constant references to the plans for the wastewater to be dumped in the Pacific. That creates the wrong impression. It's to be discharged into Japan's own backyard, 7,306 kilometres from Fiji. He went on to say... Comparisons between the nuclear legacy in the Pacific and Japan's nuclear wastewater release is fear-mongering. The UN Nuclear Watchdog's comprehensive report says the plan is safe and Tokyo Electric Power Company is preparing to start what will be a 30- to 40-year process. The final decision will be made on in the morning of the 24th based on the climate conditions or weather conditions. decision will be made whether this discharge is going to happen on that day. President Kobayakawa is making a coordination so that he will be able to have a dialogue or to provide explanation to the stakeholders, including people in the fishing industry. This comes 12 years after a tsunami slammed the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, resulting in what has been labelled as the largest civil nuclear energy disaster since Chernobyl. The disaster coordinator in Bougainville says as many as 60,000 people have been affected by two months of heavy rain. This has come at the same time as the eruption of Mount Bagana, which has put at least 3,000 people into displacement centres at Torokina and Wakunai. With much of South Bougainville also a flood zone, the Bougainville government last week extended a state of emergency until mid-October. Disaster coordinator Esther Usurop spoke with Don Wiseman. The flooding is quite bad at this time because we've had uh, torrential rain for over uh, two months straight. And so the whole of South Bowmanville from Torokina to CY, Bana and Buin specifically have all been inundated. And as of the last 24 hours, we've had a um, you know rapid needs assessment team that have been deployed. And they're currently now with Clara Moimoy, who is the regional disaster you know team leader for the south of Bougainville, so they've met up with her to ensure that at least the uh, rapid needs assessment as well as the displacement assessments are conducted over the next few days in the areas that I've just um, mentioned. We're yet to get the um, you know formal report back from our assessment team, which are made up of IOM, Red Cross, as well as you know the UN team and one of our own ABG members of staff um, to ensure that we get that first-hand information back. All right. So do we know at this point, have we got any idea of the numbers that have been displaced as a result of flooding? So at least for now, when we're talking about the displacement, that's what we need to actually you know quantify based on the RNA. But overall, in terms of the affected population, um, we're looking at more than 60,000 people uh, in terms of affected but uh, or the rapid needs assessment will ensure that we drill down to actually identifying the displaced individuals. As well as the camps that have been set up at Wakunai and Torokina for the people affected by the volcano, other camps are being set up both for the volcanic uh, activity and for the flooding. So at this stage, what we have is that the Buin Centre, we're centralising all of the rations from, from Buin, um, and that's actually being implemented or activated just only within this next 
couple of days and this week. So we have national members, both um, Masu and Chamalili, who have obtained rations all the way from Rabao, and that will be coming through on a PNG-DF vessel, the um, HMAS PNG Gloucester, and that will go directly to Buin and offload there at Kangu um, Wharf. At this stage, the most feasible way to deploy all of the rations to CY and Bana and areas and parts of Torokina as well as within Buin is by air. So we're actually collating the quotations now for the chopper service for us to try and ensure that uh, deployment of the rations or initial food ration supply to those flooded areas will be deployed. So we're working on administering that over the next 48 hours. So there are people, though, down there who have been forced to move into evacuation camps? Um, At this stage, um, like I mentioned, I haven't gotten that clarification from Clara. What we have done is that we have organized drop zones, drop zones in terms of rations. And once we get clarity over the next day, in terms of visibility on those that are displaced, we'll make further advice or action to the people in regards to whether the care center component is actually uh, established or set up. Right now, we're just ensuring that at least the food supply, there are specific drop zones initiated. Now, to come back to the, the volcano, Is it still erupting at this point? Yes, it's currently erupting and as of the 18th of August, um, we're still at a prolonged stage two alert and our NICTA team as well as our RVO team from Rabaul are working on a permanent solution. So over the last four days, they've been deployed and they're currently in Buka as well as in Pivar at this current stage and they've been able to have a temporary solution in terms of seismic readings. So they've been able to actually now link up with the RVO, Mr. Ima. Itikarai over in Rabaul on a daily basis in terms of reading. So by at least this Sunday, we'll have a week of readings. And what the NICTA team are doing is to ensure that we have the system established where there is a permanent solution established um, in terms of getting current readings rather than latent readings where the team currently have to go down to the beach to pick up a signal and then send through to Rabaul. So, you know, we're very happy that the technical assistance in regards to the deployment of the monitoring and seismic instrumentation is actually now work in progress and is being established. Around 100,000 people in New Zealand are experiencing homelessness. This is according to New Zealand Human Rights Commissioner Paul Hunt, who says a housing crisis has persisted in the country for four decades. Hunt says every increasing property costs are an economic burden, affecting the living standards and mental well-being of families. A report released this year shows that Pacifica are the hardest hit, with 40% living in overcrowded homes. Fina Fonoa spoke with Paul Hunt. Is there a housing crisis in New Zealand? Um, yeah, there sure is a housing crisis uh, in, in New Zealand. But it's not just a housing crisis, you know, it's a, it's a human rights crisis. You know, in, in New Zealand, there are today about, about 100,000 people who are living in homelessness. And, um, and by homelessness, I mean they're living on the street or they're living in emergency housing or they're living in really seriously substandard housing, you know, with mold climbing up the wall and they're, they're damp and, and cold and so forth. So there's no question whatsoever there's a housing crisis, but it's also a human rights crisis. And in the Human Rights Commission, what we're trying to do is to address it uh, as as a human rights issue. And 
What impacts does unaffordable housing have on society? It affects their health, it affects their well-being, and it affects also their productivity. You know, families' housing costs should be no more than about 30% of the family's income. It should be, you know, housing shouldn't be taking more than about 30% of the family income. But in New Zealand, you know, many families are having to devote 50% of their income uh, on housing, and that erodes their standard of living in, in lots of ways. And it disproportionately badly affects some groups. So we know that Maori, Pacific people are disproportionately badly affected by the housing crisis. It, it's not affecting everybody uh, equally. You know, human rights are all about fairness and, and decency and equality and, and community and for everybody, you know, not just for the well-off, but for everybody. But that's not happening across the board in Aotearoa. And one of the reasons why it's not happening is that we have this housing crisis. Is housing a human right or is it a commodity? Is it on the, is it on the, on us to afford housing? Well, it's a really good question. Look, New Zealand, uh, like many, many countries, they've signed up to the rights to a decent home grounded on Te Tiriti. So the government, uh, successive governments have signed up to this. You know, they've gone to the United Nations. They've signed various binding international human rights treaties. And some of those binding international human rights treaties include the right to a decent home. So there's no question at all, there's no question at all that housing is a basic, fundamental human right. It's not purely a uh, commodity. Now, having said that, of course, the right to a decent home doesn't mean that the government you know, has to give everyone a house. That's ridiculous. But what it does mean is this human right to a decent home, what it does mean is that the government has to do everything in its power so that everyone can live in a warm, uh, dry, um, accessible, affordable home. That's what it means. And when we look at the last 40 years in Aotearoa, that hasn't happened. The conditions have not been put in place whereby everyone can live in a safe, warm, dry, accessible, affordable home. That hasn't happened. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, it's important that we understand the current housing human rights crisis has, is the product of 40 years of missed opportunities, 40 years of dropping the ball in Aotearoa. Um, and now the, the present government is, is actually taking this very seriously and it's got a number of interventions uh, and, um, and uh, you know, there are some uh, modest signs of progress um, and uh, we'll, we'll have to see how things uh, you know, emerge over the next few years. But is this, you know, whoever the government might be, but, but there's no... There's no misunderstanding. There's no question that 
housing, a, a decent home is a human right. You said missed opportunities. Could you explain that? Yeah. Well, look, some, some 30, 40 years ago, there was a, uh, a housing commission here in Aotearoa. It, it was sort of arm's length from government. It advised government. Uh, it did reports. It monitored what was going on. Um, and that, was, uh, that, that commission was, was disestablished, and it wasn't replaced by anything else. And um, so a, a monitor, there was no longer a, a monitor on what was going on in the housing sector in Aotearoa. And that was, a, uh, a, that was a, you know, in hindsight, it's easy with hindsight, right? But in hindsight, that was, that was a misjudgment. And um, we, we, we know that, you know, sufficient numbers of houses have not been built. <laughs> and we, we know that the numbers of public homes social housing, uh, we know that the numbers have diminished and we know that that's had a bad effect. So, you know, for some 40 years, it's not one government, a whole number of governments have not done all that they could have done. And we're now paying the price for that. And the people who are most especially paying the price for that are those people who are already disadvantaged, already having a hard time. So we've got a, a, we've got a, there's a human rights responsibility on the government to do everything in their power to put that right. That's Pacific Waves for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, so far so far.